Welcome back to the Bravo Dog Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Erdman. I'm a certified dog trainer and behavior consultant and own bravodog.ca. Today, we have a special guest all the way from Pennsylvania. She's going to talk to us about those dogs that mouth, jump, bite at the leash, have a hard time settling, and how she works with these dogs in the shelter environment. So tune in and hope you enjoy. Hello, Rachel. Hey, I think I got you finally. <laughs> Yay. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having yeah, me. For sure. Sometimes we run into technical difficulties when we're recording podcasts. So we had a little bit of that this morning, but that's okay. So why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and, and let us know a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so my name is Rachel Golub. I'm a CDBC and a, I also have my CPDT. Um, I'm the Behavior and Adoptions Manager for the Pennsylvania SPCA, and that's about all my good stuff. Cool. And how long have you been there for? So I've been with the organization uh, coming up on three years. Uh, I originally started out as a site manager of one of our other locations, uh, and then about a year ago, I transferred over to our headquarters, which is in Philadelphia, and took on the Behavior and Adoptions uh, positions. Wow. That's a, that's, those, that's a pretty big um, role. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of uncharted territory because, you know, both of those departments kind of operated independently. Um, okay. But one of the things that we found is obviously behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. It occurs in pretty much everything in sheltering. Um, but especially it, it really integrates well with adoptions because we are informing adopters on behavior prior to adoption as well as after adoption. Uh, so the merge actually worked really, really well, but it's definitely unique. Wow, that's fantastic. And so would you say um, the majority of dogs that you are seeing um, surrendered, do they have something in common? Um, what's sort of the trend that you're, you see? Um, so, I mean, prior to COVID, I feel like a lot of the trends we saw were just people not having the time to dedicate to working with the dogs that they had. And, and majority of the time, they're kind of those dogs that fall into that nine months to three years category um, where they are a little bit more demanding and depending on what those life circumstances are obviously it's a little bit challenging to work on those things um, but I think now what we're seeing a bit more of is just everything in between those you know nine months up to 10 just because of COVID situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah well I, and for me the reason why I connected with you is uh, you have a great Instagram page which is animal behavior nerd for anybody that's interested. Um, the videos that you were showing working with some of these adolescent dogs that um, are very high energy, mouthy, um, maybe get frustrated easily. How would you describe those dogs? Is that, is that what you're seeing with some of these adolescent dogs? Uh, absolutely. And I think surprisingly, uh, the good number of these dogs that display those behaviors that you're uh, saying are actually animals that came from our cruelty and humane law enforcement side of things. Um, mm. So they're not even ones that I think people intentionally were surrendering. They came in from some difficult situations. But um, I will say, I mean, a large number of the dogs in shelter display those behaviors. Um, we do kind of get the gamut in sheltering. You get, you know, the really old guys, you get the young, young puppies, and then you get like the middle-aged perfect dogs. But those are, of course, few and far between. Few, yeah. <laughs> um, but, a, a, you know, a decent amount, like I'd say probably three quarters of the animal, of the dogs primarily that we have in our main adoption kennel are dogs that are on that spectrum of that high arousal. Um, so the, the ones that I tend to post are definitely 
the highest um, of that level, but that's also because those are the ones I enjoy the most. Um, but we definitely have like the middle and the low level as well. Right. And I, and I can, I mean, to me, when I'm looking at these dogs, I always am, am questioning, I mean, there's so many factors as to why they are the way that they are, right? Like it, you know, their early environment, um, socialization, uh, and then the environment that they're now in, in at the shelter, how much is all of that influencing? Oh, and of course, genetics, how, how, how is that all building and working together, resulting in what we're seeing? Um, what, what factors do you think play the biggest role in, in these adolescent dogs that are just almost unmanageable for the average person? Um, so, I mean, I think the, we've had a high number recently that, that we've kind of pulled apart for a study group, um, because we did notice, I pulled some of our data and we found that the majority of the dogs that were returned either once or multiple times in a short period of time tended to be these dogs that fell in that nine months to three year category um, that exhibited behaviors that are associated with high arousal. So the leash biting, the jumping up, the hard mouthing and things like that. Um, and I think when we look at their history of their intake status, majority of them, like I said, came in through humane law enforcement cases. And then mm-hmm. when I started looking at those details, what I found is almost all of those dogs were abandonment cases. So they were left in people's yards and people's basements and condemned housing Um, So I think these are all dogs that didn't have any influence from humans for the most part. Mm. Um, So then when they did get that interaction with people, they are usually just so excited to have it that they didn't know what to do with it. Um, So I think that for our, at least in my experience with the dogs that we've worked with, that seems to be the common denominator. And I did really pull that data because I, I would like eventually to, you know, study that a little bit closer because it is something that I think universally in talking to a lot of behavior managers from other shelters, we all experience this at a very high level. Um, And if there's something that we can all learn from that data, I think that would be super helpful. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Tell me a bit about the pro the structured programs that you put together for dogs like this. What do they include? Um, So I think the, the first thing that we do is we kind of okay, we identified the characteristics, right? So the the behaviors that are associated, and then we kind of look at the frequency that we're seeing it um, in the kennel and then outside of the kennel. So we take data from our animal care attendants, from our veterinarians, um, from our adoptions counselors and go, okay, have we all seen these same behaviors? Where do we see it the most? Um, And what we found is primarily these guys, you know, hyperarousal is definitely triggered by Um, environmental stimulation. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, loud noises, lots of foot traffic, things like that, which of course, all those things happen in a shelter um, on a (laughs) daily basis throughout the day. Um, So what we do first is we've kind of identified uh, these guys as early on as we can. So ideally within the first two weeks of them arriving to the shelter. Um, And then we have a, a, what we call our transport center, but it's a separate set of kennels that's away from our main kennel, um, adoption kennel. Um, And it's only five kennels, but it is a quieter space and we can limit the foot traffic. So we only have two animal care attendants that go in and out of there. And then it's just behavior staff, no volunteers, no public. um, Nobody is allowed to go in there except for those controlled people. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's really nice because we can control some of those environmental factors that definitely exacerbate the high arousal. Um, So we do that first. We move them into there. And it's soon, like usually the day after we've moved them in there, we give them like 24 hours to kind of decompress in that space. Um, And then the day after we start this kind of intense regimen. 
Um, what we started doing was we feed them all of their meals. So their morning and their afternoon meals um, or evening. Um, we feed those all as part of their behavior modification program. Okay. So we get them out for about half an hour, each dog. Um, we take them for a nice walk um, and then we bring them into our office. Cause what we found was a lot of these guys on their walks are perfect and wonderful. What it is, is it's those spaces where there isn't a lot of stuff for them to investigate. Um, like the outside, outside you have lots of smells and sights and new things. And there's a lot of stuff for them to kind of get engrossed into where you don't see those behaviors. But when you take them into an office space or a home-like setting, they kind of explode with those behaviors because it's there's nothing to really distract them anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so we take them into office space and then we really, we use their food to start working on these behaviors. So the, the foundation behavior that we found works the best is station training. Um, which I'm a huge advocate of. Um, I have taught all animals of all species to station, and I think it's a, a really valuable tool um, in a lot of foundation training. So, so for the average person out there, tell us what that, what, what is station training? So station training is just teaching an animal to go to a physical space on cue. Um, so that space, it depends on the species. Um, typically with dogs, it's either a cot or a bed. Um, when we've done it with, uh, I've, I've worked with hornbills, um, we teach them to stand on like a tabletop. Mm -hmm. um, when I did it with my goats, I taught them to stand on a piece <laughs> of AstroTurf. Um, so so it, it's, it's a, a place for them to go consistently. Um, and you can work on whatever training you're going to work on next with them. Exactly. So it's really right. just, it's a target behavior, but it's all four paws have to be on the target as opposed to like a nose target or something like that. Right. Got it. Okay. So. so, so a lot of stationing. Yep. Um, okay. So we do stationing mostly because too, these guys have a really hard time um, with being separated from the person. So a lot of the station behavior, it's, it's also good as like a control behavior. So it teaches them to kind of control their impulses, but it also teaches them a little bit of a distance from the person. Okay. Um, so we do that station behavior. We add duration onto it. Um, so they have to not just go to the station and then pop right back off. They have to go onto that station and stay there for a few seconds. And we build that up to a few minutes at a time. Um, so once it's on cue, then we add that duration to it. Um, and then we start kind of playing with that and start sending them to that station from other locations. Um, and that's incredibly helpful, especially for dogs that are really mouthy um, or leash biting and things like that. If you're interacting with them in a different way, you can send them to that station from wherever you are. And that gives you that space from them. Um, and then it kind of gets them back in that learning game of, okay, this is where I go to start engaging with training properly. Right. Okay. Got it. So we've got stationing. Um, now, would you say that the, I mean, I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around training proactively instead of reacting once the dog is already mouthing and jumping mm -hmm. what would you say to uh, somebody who maybe has adopted a dog that is displaying some of these behaviors and they're frustrated uh, I mean that's a tough one I think that's part of why we've started really engaging adopters before they take the dog home and kind of teaching them those skills in advance um, because I think once the human reaches that frustration level that's <laughs> when things just unravel um, because we are programmed to react, um, and typically it's not a positive reaction. Um, so I think, you know, if, if you're in that space, I definitely would say, you know, give yourself a timeout. Um, <laughs> so, you know, leave whatever space your dog is in, as long as they're in a safe area. So, you know, I, I'm 
lucky in that I have a basement because I'm on the East Coast. But, um, you know, of course, when I was in California, that was not a thing. Um, so I would, you know, put my dogs in their own little room or, you know, in a enclosed space, like a living room or something like that. And then I would go into my room for a little bit and just kind of take a break. Cause I I've mm-hmm. lived with these dogs. Not only have I done like board and train with them and shelter training, but I've had my own pet dogs were exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely understand that frustration, but I think the only thing that you can do is to kind of get space, take a deep breath and then try and think logically through these things. Yeah. Well, and I noticed when you're working with these dogs um, and there is mouthing and jumping up, you're very, um, you're very patient, you're very calm and you're very consistent with your, your, your movements and you're not, um, you're trying your best not to engage with them to make it worse. Yeah. And that's definitely a learned thing because, you know, even in my, my own team, not a lot of them have had that kind of experience and having to teach them as well as adopters of, it may sound counterintuitive to do nothing because that's innate in humans is to be like, okay, this is something I don't like. I have to respond to it. Um, But you have to really kind of take yourself out of it because any engagement is going to reinforce the behavior likely um, because that's the whole thing of of this arousal is they're desperate for that engagement um so if you even tug back a tiny bit on a leash or you pull your arm back you know really quickly when they're mouthing on you it exacerbates the situation so you have to kind of just take as many deep breaths as you can and kind of wait it out as as much as you can unless of course the animal's doing major damage or hurting you beyond something that is um, safe and then you know there's other things that would have to be done yeah, for sure. Well, and I, I sort of look at it differently than, so not engaging is very different than completely ignoring or um, consistently using what we would call timeouts. Mm-hmm. Um, I can imagine, why don't you tell tell folks the, the side effects of, of, of that with these kinds of dogs, um, how much frustration that might actually cause as a response? Yeah. I mean, so it falls kind of into that extinction bracket, right? Of like, if you take away the thing that's giving some sort of reinforcement value to the animal, you get that panic. Um, So you get that extinction burst of why have you walked away from me? Why have you taken all of this away? And it it definitely causes this behavior to intensify. Um, So and it's interesting, because I I did some research over the past couple days, just to see what other trainers say. Um, on these kinds of behaviors. And I was surprised at how much I saw that of like, just ignore it until it settles down. And I'm like, (laughs) if I tried that with any of these dogs that um, I would consider like that really high level, they would definitely mouth until they broke skin um, or caused bruising or, and you just, you can't do that with these dogs. Um, I think you can do it with some of the dogs that they consider like hyperactive, um, like the Aussie type breeds and the herding type breeds that are just go, go, go constantly. Um, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you know, you, you tried doing that with a 60 to 80 pound pity who's putting pretty intense pressure on your arm or biting a leash until it breaks in half and and you're going to get into that danger zone. Yeah. 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 So there's that balance of remaining calm and, and somewhat disengaging but not a, a, a an actual like timeout complete so that you don't get to that point of that frustration and then being able to install behaviors proactively so that the animal hopefully doesn't get to that point and we alleviate some of these behaviors that you're seeing would that is that accurate 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think too, like one of the things that I have found that is so important for these guys is it's, they need um, kind of that constant feedback on their interactions. Um, So if you're a trainer or an adopter that is silent, um, I found that that actually Mm. kind of uh, causes a little bit more anxiety. Like they're trying to, I hate to to anthropomorphize, but like they're trying to figure out why you're silent. Yeah. Um, So I I think, you know, really staying consistent in what you're saying and using the same words and the same tones over and over uh, really seems to help with that. Because if you, you know, I'm not a fan of the uh, interrupters that are kind of negative, Mm -hmm. like no's and things like that, but just kind of that same, like, "Uh uh-uh, this, this behavior is not what we want, but this is, and start to, you know, use that happy tone to encourage those good behaviors and those good interactions, um, I've found kind of keeps them on track better than silence. Right. Because it goes back to that no feedback, frustration, not knowing what to do. Then, and then it gets to that point again, where they're doing the things that we don't like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. Um, so you're essentially trying to teach these dogs how to interact with people in, in normal day-to-day situations, um, sort of normally, I guess, because they haven't had that advantage. And they're sort of desperate for, for any kind of physical contact. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's a tricky balance because, you know, that desperation turns into frustration really quickly. Um, yeah. You're like, you know, you want to give them small bits of that because that's both human and animal is like, we're used to touching animals and the animals are used to being touched. So trying to find that in a way that is safe is also really interesting. Um, you know, I think, when I first started training, the solution for all mouthy dogs was to make that high pitch ouch sound when you got mm. uh, mouthed on um, and then to replace it with a toy or something like that. And those work some of the time. Um, I definitely am not a big fan of the ouch thing, even even with little puppies, because I have yeah, same. <laughs> I found, it, you know, <laughs> some dogs like one of my own personal dogs. Now she's great um, when she was an eight week old puppy and she was horrible and hanging off of my shirt sleeves and stuff. Um, if I said, ouch, she thought it was fun and would come back 10 times harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I think especially some of these adolescent dogs, it's the same thing. You're turning into a live squeaky toy. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I do a lot of engagement with toys with these dogs, but it's so structured. It's definitely right. not mindless. Like just here's a toy. Good luck. It's like, yep. you take that toy, you bring it to me. I pull away with it. I let you take it back. Um, And we do that over and over so that you're learning to bring me something. I will engage in that kind of tug and mouthing behavior, but with something that's safe. And then you always get to win so that you get the choice of bringing it back to me. Um, Or I'll do that same type of thing. And then the second that they've released it, or I teach a drop cue, you know, you have to go get it and then retrieve it and bring it back. And then we engage. So there's structure on that toy type behavior that replaces some of that mouthing um, in a constructive way, but it's also just not a, a complete replacement behavior because there does still have to be some sort of that touching that ends up happening towards the end. Yeah. Well, and I think for listeners out there too, this is, this is very different than the concept of um, control. Uh, This is, this is not, that's not what this is about the, you know, the human controlling everything for the animal. It's teaching them some, some actual coping skills with how the world works Um, would you say that that's right? Yeah. I think if anything, you're actually teaching the animal to control the interaction. 
So you're mm-hmm. kind of putting these parameters around things and going, not, it's not, I am telling you what to do at all times. It's if you would like to engage with me, here's the appropriate ways that will get that engagement. Um, right. So you're kind of giving, and I found, especially with these high arousal dogs, that control component for them is so helpful. Um, yeah. You know, I, I love pretty much everything Susan Friedman always says about <laughs> giving animals control because yeah. it, it does. Like the more control that they can feel over their environment, over their interactions with humans and other animals, it kind of is like that last missing key that that unlocks everything else. Yeah. And I think it's unfortunate that the popular culture um, sort of has taught people that we don't want animals to control anything. You know, and, and I think that it, 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 it's just a lack of understanding that when animals do have choice and control over their environment, they're actually uh, much better behaved and um, easier to live with. <laughs> so yeah. so um, I think that shift definitely needs to happen. Um, well, I think, too, I'm one of those people that I don't I don't want a dog that I have to tell what to do all the time. Right. Um, and I would prefer to kind of just pre-program that in our beginning of our relationship and say, okay, here's the expectations. And then you have kind of the freedom to decide how we interact. Yeah. And I think it's easy. I mean, I've said this before is that it's easier for animals to navigate our world when we're consistent and we have patterns that they can follow um, versus and we're so inconsistent just as, as <laughs> by nature. Right. Yeah. But remembering that, that animals, they're looking for these consistent patterns. Um, it's the kindest thing to do is to put those into place for them, um, so that they know how to access what it is that they need and, and tell us how they need those things without it being a negative behavior that we don't like. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to have to yeah. constantly give that negative feedback. I'd rather, you know, no, no, because that's what you'll have to do for probably ever. Right. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel good. I mean, most of the clients that I work with when we've changed the methods that they're working with um, and they are relieved and they feel much better about being proactive and seeing the results of, of, of what their dogs are, are doing and how they're behaving every day. So yeah, it de- definitely doesn't feel good to have that negative um, approach. Yeah. So, and yeah. I think, you know, we, we've all talked like most positive spectrum trainers would definitely say that, you know, once you start that punishment, you, you end up with that fallout and then it kind of trickles into all other areas of your interactions. Um, yeah. So yeah, if we can avoid yeah. that, that definitely helps everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's say somebody adopts um, a dog at, from a shelter, not your shelter and does not have the benefit of, the counseling that you provide and the support um, and they are finding that they've got this adolescent dog um, and, and that they are displaying some of these behaviors that um, are frustrating, but they would like to change them. They would like to work with them. What would you suggest that they do? Um, I mean, definitely try and find a positive reinforcement based trainer anywhere near them. Um, but if not, you know, th- thankfully there's a ton of resources these days on the internet. Um, there's a bunch of great YouTube videos. Um, I think really the foundation that should be set is create a predictable schedule for yourself of when you'll be doing these interactions with your animal, um, not only for yourself, but for your dogs so that they can understand, okay, this is what time we go potty. This is what time we have uh, feeding time. This is what interaction time is. And this is what downtime is. Um, because even if you do nothing else, creating that consistency throughout your days will help your dog kind of figure out when is playtime and when is not playtime. 
Um, and then once you've kind of identified when are those times where you will play or you will engage with them, then you can start doing even just really basic stuff. Like crate training is to me like the end all be all. I know still some people are very hesitant about crate training because they consider it, you know, um, caging up their dog or things like that. And I think high arousal dogs, especially there's kind of a negative stigmatism of like, if the dog is going into a crate, you're confining it and you're building frustration. Um, but if you are doing crate training properly, it's a type of training. It's, it's play almost, right? So the dog goes in, it gets a treat, it comes right back out. And you do that a thousand times. Um, that helps them kind of learn this is where all the good things happen, similar to the station training. Um, mm-hmm. But it also allows you a place to have them go with some sort of um, enrichment type device. Um, which gives you that little bit of a break. Um, so I feed all of these high arousal dogs, all of their meals either come by hand when we're doing our training um, or we'll do the little bit of the training and then we'll finish it with some sort of an enrichment type feeding. So whether mm-hmm. it's a snuffle mat, um, a stuffed Kong, a wobbler, I use cardboard boxes a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Anything that you can do like that, just teaching the dog to go into that space only for those enrichment things is really, really helpful. Cause like I said, that gives you kind of that break if you are becoming overwhelmed with their mouthing and their jumping and their demand barking or whatever else. Um, having that consistency of this is a place that you go and I can actually close the door and know that you're okay and not panic is really helpful. I think for most people. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think if, if you can do those two things and nothing else, even that is going to help a thousand times is just creating a a consistent routine and doing some basic crate training with some enrichment feeding. Um, even if you don't do the station training, even if you don't do the engagement with toys, like even if you don't do any of that stuff, those two things will help you the most. Okay. And exercise, what do you think, um, you know, there's often that advice, well, just increase their exercise. Well, with these types of dogs, what's the result of just plying them with exercise? It's going to intensify those behaviors <laughs> a thousandfold. So that's w- yeah. what was interesting is, um, you know, one of my my team members, the dog Milo that I've been using in most of my really high arousal videos, he is one of our, our most challenging dogs that we've worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, when she first started working with him, she took him into one of our play yards and would try and play with him. Cause she was like, well, if I can get him tugging on, you know, a rope toy, he's going to stop tugging on his leash as much. Um, and we found the opposite happened, right? <laughs> the arousal intensified. He started grabbing onto arms and clothing and he could not come back down. Cause once those dogs are up to that, like level 10 of arousal, getting them to come back down can take days. Um, so, you know, those, those structured walks are really good. Um, but, just mindless mindless exercise makes it worse you know most of these dogs part of why they're so intense is they're brilliant um and they if their brain isn't being worked then that's when they kind of spill all over and do all kinds of insane things um Mm -hmm. so you know that kind of mindless and, and you know just taking a dog to a field and letting it run without doing anything else it, it just causes way too many issues. Um, so yeah. they definitely need that brain, brain games involved in things. Um, so high, I was going to say like, you know, high intensity exercise, we're, we're going to have, uh, influences like adrenaline. Would you, is that what we are talking about? Like you really want to keep your stru- structured walks for, for people that just don't know would be, uh, working on training when you're out on a leashed walk, asking them or cueing them for different behaviors and reinforcing those behaviors. Is that sort of Absolutely. what we're thinking? 
Um, I have found with some of these guys, they won't take food on these kinds of walks. Um, Most Mm -hmm. of them, the outside world is so stimulating that the food just loses all reinforcement value. Um, So they'll take it in enclosed spaces when there's not as much going on. Um, So what I tend to kind of do instead is, you know, I walk with them a bit, but then I also point to a lot of things and try and encourage them to engage with things that they may have just blown by. So uh, we're really lucky at my current shelter. We have a nice pasture area uh, full of um, holes where the groundhogs live. Um, And (laughs) thankfully there's no groundhogs really in them anymore, but the holes are still there. So I will actually point those holes out and go, Hey, look at this and encourage them to kind of sniff and interact with that space or, um, we had, uh, horses that were coming into our pasture. So I would try and take them to those areas and go look, smell this area. Cause that smelling is really helpful for them to kind of get themselves engrossed in something that doesn't cause that hyper arousal. So I can smell and interact with this without having to engage in my body really. Um, so I found that that's what I tend to do with those guys is kind of engage them more in the sniffing than anything else having to do okay. with me. Um, just because I have found too, that if I start engaging too much with me in those situations, they do start to amp up a bit. Right. So less about cueing them to do things because we can't reinforce those behaviors in that environment anyways, because they're too keyed up probably. So sort of like a decompression walk, but a sniffy sort of investigative walk is helpful. Would you say, and not focusing on, uh, things like pulling, (laughs) Yeah, and I okay. do, That's I what do I a figured. ton of directional changes, um, which I found because a lot of these guys are also, you know, they're young adolescent dogs, so they are going to pull quite a bit on leash. Um, so we'll we'll walk a little bit in one way, and I kind of definitely try to match their pace as much as possible, and then we'll switch directions kind of abruptly and go, okay, well, let's go this way now and investigate some things that you weren't expecting, because otherwise they do kind of get into that um, – low stance where they're pulling forward and all they can think about is getting to the next step. Um, So kind of switching those directions and encouraging them to interact with places that they may have breezed by earlier really does help. Yeah. Okay. So I think at least, well, correct me if I'm wrong. And this is sort of the direction I go with, with my clients too, is um, if, if pulling on walks is a problem, are we looking at all of their needs being met? Um, and to bringing down that pull. So the pulling is a result of them being really stimulated in these environments. Um, and so putting off working on formal leash training skills would be advised. Absolutely. Is that correct? Yeah. Would you say? And I, okay. you know, I think yeah. there are ways to work on that once you've kind of built some sort of a foundation with them. Um, like I said, most of these yeah. guys were controlling their feedings and we're using their feedings as an opportunity to train them instead of using a bunch of um, treats and things later on, which, cause we found these guys do mm-hmm. in a shelter environment, get really overweight really fast. And that makes things very challenging. Um, so I think ah. if, if, adopters can do some of the same thing of if you are walking your dog twice a day and you can measure out your kibble and take it with you on your walk then when you have that foundation built you can start working on that stuff with the kibble Um, and I found that works out pretty well for these guys okay great yeah no I think these are some excellent points for people because it's 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 not just um, in the shelter these dogs are in our communities um, and we don't want them to be, to be relinquished. We want them to stay in homes, obviously, but 
um, they need the tools and support to be able to do that. So I think all of these points are and sort of the focus of what what we can do proactively or, you know, after we're seeing these things happen in the home, um, hopefully it'll help yeah. people. And I think um, it's on that yeah. proactive side, you know, if you are a person that got a six month old puppy now, I mean, obviously before the six months is great time to start working on this stuff. Um, but definitely around that six month mark, teaching some of these behaviors, um, that station training, that crate training, engagement with their handler, doing that stuff early on um, from that six months to a year will help them kind of pro- be proactive about it and not have those behaviors like we're describing now pop up later on. Yeah. And they're not going to grow out of this. That's the thing. They will not grow out of these things, you guys. So you have to you have to work on it. These, these are, you know, when you get a dog, it's a project and it's a, it's a commitment to work on it consistently yeah. with them, right? And I think so. that's one of the major misconceptions is, okay, this is just their adolescent phase. And once they hit three, mm. they'll be fine. Just, you know, grin and bear it until they're that level. And it's, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, no, precisely. So I think, um, yeah, these have given, I think people some good, uh, some, a good direction to go in. Um, I would, again, encourage everybody to follow Rachel uh, on her Instagram. I think it's fantastic. I love watching the videos, which is Animal Behavior Nerd. And um, I think it was a a great conversation. So thanks for joining us today. Did you have anything else you wanted to share? No, I mean, if if you want to definitely support the work that we do, um, you know, we are a shelter that's trying to be more progressive in our behavior modification. Um, So any help that people can provide by donating to PSPCA.org. Um, is always appreciated. Um, so yeah, that's the only thing I wanted to add. Amazing. Oh, yeah, that's great. Fantastic. Thanks so much, everybody. We will we'll catch you next Thank time. You. Thank All you. Thank right, you. Take care. Bye. That was such a great discussion with Rachel, some great insight into how to set these types of dogs up for success. And if you've got a dog facing some challenges, she had some great tips. So thanks again to Rachel from the Pennsylvania SPCA. Join us next time on the Bravo Dog Knowledge podcast. And thanks for joining us.